This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Is this just a political fight, some political theatre? A lot of people saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. It is too easy just to blame Brexit. Surely it can't be anything means bye, bye, bye. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable from the London Close to the US Action live on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5pm in the City of London. Let's get you your London Close. The FTSE 100 positive by a half of 1%. A really decent session for risk appetite globally. In the FX market, that means a stronger dollar, a weaker pound. The cable rate pulls back to 131.72. We're down by about two tenths of 1%. Before we get our Teeth into more of the market action. Let's get you up to speed on the top stories and welcome Bloomberg's Charlie Pellet. And I thank you very much, Jonathan Farrow. As always, lots going on on this Monday. And Prime Minister May's government appears close to victory on a Brexit bill in Parliament. May will likely squeak to victory on a bill that will let the government copy EU laws onto the domestic statute book. The real challenge will be whether May can keep the draft law from being amended at the so-called committee stage. It enters next. 9-11 victims' relatives in the U.S. marking the anniversary of the attacks at Ground Zero with a personal ceremony. Relatives ran out the names of the nearly 3,000 people killed in the deadliest terror attack on American soil. At the Pentagon in Washington, President Trump said the September 11th terrorist attacks were the moment the U.S. awakened to the depth of the evil it faces. And tomorrow's a big day for Apple and Apple fans. It is planning to unveil three iPhones tomorrow, including two that are upgrades to the 7 and the iPhone 7 Plus called the 8 and the iPhone 8 Plus. And then there's that premium model called the iPhone X. That is the latest from the news desk. Back to you, Jonathan Farrell. Do we call it the X or the 10 because of the Roman numeral X? You know, I hadn't given that a second thought. I'm going with X simply because X, X, X. I guess we're going to find out tomorrow when it's launched. I just want to know how much the thing costs. What's your bet? Um, I assume they're going with the X as well. Yeah, for extra expensive. And then extra expensive, <laughs> about $1,000, and something I don't want to spend. Bring back subsidies. Yes. Um, they're <laughs> going right. to subsidize the iPhone. Yeah, exactly. There we go. Exactly. There we All go. right, cheers. Have Bloomberg's a good one. Charlie Pellet. Great to catch up with you. Let's begin with the top story, shall we? Hurricane Irma is now weaker and no longer a hurricane. It's a tropical storm, but still dangerous, and headed for Georgia. The storm left a trail of destruction across South Florida over the weekend, flooding Miami's financial district and parts of Miami Beach. Still, the Miami Beach mayor, Philip Levine, who spoke to Bloomberg today, says things could have been a lot worse. Basically, what we saw yesterday and last night is lots of trees down, power lines down. Uh, we had a couple of gas leaks. Uh, we didn't see any major physical damage. Uh, thank God our pumps held. Uh, uh, we had very, very minimal flooding. And in the uh-huh. areas that we improved, we were uh-huh. making our investments. There was literally no flooding at all. Uh, so I, as I said, uh, Miami and Miami Beach, uh, we didn't dodge a bullet. We, we dodged a cannon. And so we're very happy about that. Joining me now to discuss is Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, and Michael Hewson, the chief market analyst for CMC Markets in London. Guys, the full extent of the damage, still unknown. Enki Research has slashed its estimate for total damages from $200 billion to about $50 billion. But Marcus, I want to talk to you about catastrophe bonds. Um, of course, the promise of above market yields to investors who take on the risk that their principal could well be wiped out by a severe enough natural disaster. We learn on Friday that the Swiss recap bond price return index 
which prices every Friday drop by a record 16%. Uh, do you imagine that gap gets filled when we get another price this coming Friday? Yes, almost certainly. If you look at the uh, subset of that, the wind-only index, uh, about 60% of, of cap bonds focus on uh, US name storms or, or, or wind peril, uh, largely because you know it, it's much easier to model um, wind because there's so much more data. Um, there's all the oceanographic stuff. There's, there's, there's reams and reams of data. So the, the, the cap bond market tends to focus more on, on wind on anything else. And that wind de- index fell 30%. Um, from seeing the, uh, it'll be a tropical depression probably as of tomorrow, Irma, uh, and now that the whole uh, risk shifts onto, onto flooding away from wind. And I think that at one stage there was a risk of between three to six billion of cap on issuance directly yeah. affected by Florida. But I think it's going to be quite a lot less than that. So, Marcus, we've got this small part of the fixed income market, comparatively small, breathing a big breath, a sigh of relief. But it's a market that's built up over the last couple of years and it's got bigger and bigger. And I understand from the investor side that it offers you uncorrelated returns for obvious reasons. It's not connected to the broader market and the gyrations, the everyday moves. But I will say something, Marcus. It does point to this idea that there's this reach for yield and it's pushing investors to take much bigger risks. And in this case, it's actually pushing investors to take environmental risk. Are there any investors out there rethinking the risk they're assuming and, and the price they're being compensated? Yes, of course. I mean, it tends to sort of split into two camps. You've got the big money managers who view cap bonds as like, you know, 0.1% of their overall holdings. And it's just sort of something, as you said, to get some non-correlation on board and uh, a, a bit of fun almost. And they're quite smart people and they're looking at, at various things. They're not going to pile in only into certain types of, of, uh, of risk. And they'll be taking sort of the, the lower risk element of it. And then there's some specialist funds and particularly some, some hedge funds who are taking very much uh, very calculated risks and big risks on certain eventualities. And they have, made, have got badly hurt. Yeah. And indeed, the bigger funds might go, oh, ouch, that's a bit nasty. I've taken a 50% write down on that particular bond. Maybe I'll, I'll hang back. But actual fact, I think there's going to be more people running towards this area because they can see, hang on a second, we've got much more information now. We know exactly what's going to happen. Premiums may well rise. That means uh, that coupons could go up. That means lots more opportunities. And we have a lot more uh, way, uh, ways of looking at this. And, and in fact, a lot more issuance should come out because all these insurers need to offload this risk. They need to get their regulatory yep. capital up. Uh, you know, bring, build it and they will come. Literally, lots more issuance coming. I think you'll find that there'll be um, even more sort of demand. You know, realizing the types of um, of yield on offer, which may rise, and uh, a lot more information to, 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 to code it with. And in many ways, it's this part of the market that really allows a lot of people to get the insurance premiums at a price that maybe they wouldn't otherwise get because Correct. these insurance companies can offset the risk elsewhere. So maybe it's a good thing that this financial vehicle exists. But what I will say, you know, in terms of reach for yield, Michael Houston, I want to bring you in. And I imagine you didn't see this, but I did tweet it out about 60 minutes ago. Tajikistan came out with a dead offering. Now, I don't know how many of you saw this, but $500 million of uh, 10-year notes, oversubscribed, um, demand so good that it knocked about 90 basis points off the initial price guidance. The the government's selling at a yield of 7.125%. And the prospectus, Michael Hewson, you will love this. The prospectus, it opens up with a map 
so <laughs> that investors know where Tajikistan where is. is now I don't know about you Michael but the cheat guide for me usually is if you can't identify the country without getting the map out then you probably shouldn't buy the debt well you know what they say um, John I mean ultimately I think when you're able to get away that sort of junk bond issuance it really think tells you all you need to know about the bond market. I mean, I think we've yeah. had this discussion before, haven't we, with respect to the hundred probably year multiple bond, times <laughs> the, the hundred year bond for Argentina. I mean, how many times have they defaulted? Is it was it hundred? It was hundred, wasn't it, or something ridiculous? Uh, like that. I think it was, it was a century yeah. bond from them. I'm, I'm yeah. sure Marcus Ashworth's got the stats on how many times they've defaulted in the last century. I think it's five. To- is it? Oh, oh okay. Five, five times in about the last hundred years or something. Um, but yet it still got away. And, you know, I think this just highlights the problems of a low interest rate environment. You were talking about it there in the cap bond market. Yeah. Ultimately, that bond market is likely to get an awful lot bigger. And, you know, the big question that I would ask, ask is, Marcus talked about wind. Well, I think flooding now is become a much going to become a much bigger risk. Yeah. And what sort of premiums are they going to start asking for that sort of a... Um, that's all bond market. I can give you a cap bond with, with 7% or um, some 10-year Tajikistan debt, and I'm not sure what you'd take. Maybe you can tell me in a commercial break. Marcus Ashworth and Marcus Houston sticking with me. Coming up on the programme, we're going to talk about the, uh, the top financial centre in the world, despite Brexit. That might give you a clue. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable from the London Close to the US Action, live on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5.10pm in the city. Let's wrap up that London Close. A really decent session for risk appetite today. The FTSE firmer by a half of 1%. Gains across Europe. The DAX up by 1.4%. As we fade the hurricane risk, the insurers, the reinsurers, the real outperformers on the stock 600 today. We didn't just fade the hurricane risk. In many ways, a lot of people out there expected some escalation of the North Korea tension over the weekend. That didn't materialise. So that's been a bit of a one-two punch for uh, for risk appetite in a good way. A firmer session in the United States with the S&P 500 up 9 tenths of 1%. The Dow up by one full percentage point. Positive 232 points. In the FX market, the dollar bouncing back from a January 2015 low. It means a, uh, a weaker euro, a weaker yen, a weaker Swissy, and a weaker pound at 131.75. We're down by about two tenths of one percent. So that's the feel for the markets today. A mild risk on feel to the overall global markets. In terms of the uh, financial centres around the world, I did mention just before the commercial break about the uh, the top financial centre in the world. London has retained its crown as the world's top financial centre in a ranking that surveys industry professionals. The UK capital fell only two points in the latest Global Financial Centres Index, the smallest decline among the top 10 centres. New York held on to second place but fell 24 index points overall, presumably due to fears over US trade, according to the survey at least. Frankfurt, Dublin, Paris and Amsterdam all set to gain banking jobs that will likely have to leave London all rows. In Asia, Hong Kong leapfrogged Singapore into third place, while other US cities followed New York in losing points. Marcus Ashworth and Michael Hewson alongside me on Bloomberg Radio today. Uh, Marcus, we've had this conversation a few times. Uh, London's going nowhere. And if, from the perspective of, of industry professionals, they certainly don't want it to go anywhere either. No, I think we've got uh, several years before this really pans out and, and uh, there'll have to be quite... Uh 
a substantial uh, shift um, or very, very bad news and, and a very hard Brexit and a, and a real closing down to the services sector um, with the EU, which I, I really can't see happening um, because they need us possibly more than we need them in that context. Uh, and just going back to very briefly to, to the uh, cat bomb market, you know, that is something which gets traded out of London and particularly out of Bermuda. Um, you know, freeing up regulation, freeing up red tape, freeing up different things could make uh, a growing market for insurance-linked strategies, and that's one example of, of the future post-Brexit yeah. for London. Michael Houston, your view? Well, despite Brexit, do you know what, John? It's, it's always despite Brexit, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I googled despite Brexit. Do you know how many mentions I got? How many? 23.4 million. <laughs> <laughs> there is a certain bias to all this, isn't there? <laughs> Guido Fawkes has got a despite Brexit archive. Has he? Yeah, he has. Um, <laughs> You know, these things always make me smile. And, you know, you're absolutely right. I think there will be some gains for Frankfurt, Paris, Amsterdam and Luxembourg. But Frankfurt doesn't even get in the top 10. Well, this is it. And I think what it points out, Michael, is that this is a survey of industry professionals. Mm. Now, if you're a team leader, a manager, a CEO of a bank and you're looking at this list, you know it's going to be tough to pull people out of London. Yeah, absolutely. Because basically you've got the schools here, you've got the infrastructure here. It's been here for you know decades, and ultimately, Frankfurt doesn't have the capacity. I I read a story the other day that um, someone went out for a run in Frankfurt, and without realising it, he ran outside the city because Frankfurt's so small. <laughs> Is that a joker a story? That's a story. I read it. It's a straight up story. I can't remember where I read it, but it, I think I saw it on Twitter I mean, we've, sometime. We've all, we've all been to Frankfurt between us many, many times. I have. I mean, I've been a number of times and yeah. it is a very, very small city it and is. there's not really that much to do there. Dublin has got a housing crisis. Um, so even though it's got some of the infrastructure in place, ultimately it doesn't have the accommodation with which to accommodate um, the amount of the amount of jobs that ultimately would be needed to go there. So yeah. I think London isn't going anywhere. I don't think, irrespective of the way these Brexit talks go. Despite Brexit. Jen's just sticking with me. (laughs) Coming up next on The Cable, the European Central Bank's Benoit Couré warns that persistent euro gains may weigh on inflation. Was it some subtle verbal intervention? We'll get into that in just a moment. A check on traffic weather and all the news you need to wrap up your day right now on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrell on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Ferro. You are listening to The Cable from the London Close to the US Action Live on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5.18pm in the city. Over in Frankfurt, Germany, European Central Bank Executive Board member Benoit Coray warned that the rising euro could depress inflation unless it's offset by a strengthening economy, bolstering the case for keeping monetary policy loose for an extended period. The euro surge has become an additional headache for the ECB as policymakers try to determine the future of their bond buying programme, which is currently scheduled to expire by the end of the year. Gouro said that while there is no immediate cause for concern, there is reason for watchfulness. To discuss, Marcus Ashworth, the Bloomberg Gadfly, joins me alongside Michael Hewson, the Chief Market Analyst for CMC Markets in London. Michael Hewson, I got out the speech in the commercial break and I did a quick count of the mentions of exchange rate. Uh-huh. I, I, I know the answer to this. Go, go on, Marcus, what did you get? It's bullseye. It's, 50. It's 50. It, it's amazing. 
It is absolutely amazing. All Michael, of them meaningless. It, See, what and I don't and that's about, the point. Is it this? meaningless, Michael? Is well, it meaningless? What I don't get about this, John, is that Draghi said this last week. He was monitoring the recent volatility in the exchange rate, except yeah. there hasn't been any. <laughs> you know, I'm a currency trader. That's my background. The rise in the euro has been gradual. Yeah. Um, and it's really, I think, been, you know, fairly steady. Okay, you can talk about the fact that it's up 14% so far this year. It, and since June, it's actually gone up around about 7 or 8%. And I think that more than anything, I think, is the real concern. I think if you look at what central bankers um, look at when they look at the exchange rate, they don't mind 10, 15, 20% moves in the exchange rate, as long as they happen over, say, for example, a two or three year period. I think what they get concerned about is when it happens over a short space of time of the like that we've seen so far this year. Because ultimately, if you're a company who's who's got a global trading position, you generally hedge one year out or two years out. You don't yeah. hedge six months out or nine months out. And I think that for me is the major concern going forward. These companies haven't hedged. Inflation has come back from 1.9% in March and it's now around about 1.2, 1.3. And I think there is a concern but it's going to make it that much more difficult for the ECB to hit its inflation target. Unfortunately, it's out of the ECB's hand because an awful lot of this this euro strength has been as a result of dollar weakness. Well, you raise a really interesting point, though, and I want to focus on the language. Marcus, exchange rate volatility, why are they so reluctant to say strength? Why, why can't they just say it? Because President Draghi did the same thing in the news conference, as Michael pointed out. It seems to be the code word for euro strength. Why won't they just say it? Well, they're, they're trying. They're not supposed to be talking about uh, the currency. It's but not they part are. of their remit. Well, they have to because it's causing them real problems. And it's going to get worse because um, they actually look at a forecast uh, at, at 113th in the year. And it's already over 120th. They are, they're, they're out on that. Yeah. Growth, they upgraded their growth forecast. You know, there is real underlying uh, strength coming through, which is going to naturally going to cause the euros to rise. As Michael's pointed out, a lot of this is dollar weakness, which, you know, well, we don't know when that ends with, with what's going on uh, over, over in the States with the, uh, with the politics there. So, all which the is dri most driving down, all the Fed indeed, which I've, I've taken a pause, which uh, is causing the, the, the real problem for the euro here. They can't do anything about it apart from one thing. Statements from Core or, or, or Draghi are meaningless. However, leaks, as there was uh, on Friday, that they may be looking at, at reducing the uh, PSPP from 60 down to as low as 20, they're much more important. And they're done very much deliberately. They are the core of speech is just fluff. But the real the real uh, you know, noise is what's going on, I think, is, is this, these leaks, which are, probably won't necessarily happen. But that's the only way they can get uh, the, the euro uh, perhaps down. And, and that is really basically by uh, by pumping less money into the, into the system. Michael, there are some structural forces that are just naturally going to drive euro strength, and the ECB's been fighting them for years, successfully over the last couple, but but now it's those structural re forces are reasserting themselves. Oh, we're talking uh, about the German trade surplus, Yeah, well, we? we're talking about the overall current mm. account surplus because mm. of what's happening in Germany. But that's, that's mainly Germany's surplus, you know, the euro wherever trade it's, surplus. Wherever it's Germany's coming from, though, Michael, yeah. re regardless, it's a force that underpins a stronger euro. And it doesn't do any favours to the rest of the Eurozone. I mean, obviously, Italy is not as affected by it simply because of the fact that it, it doesn't run a significant deficit. But ultimately, they still have a very, very high unemployment rate. 
which means that they need a lower euro. But also, I think more than that, I think it's going to be very, very difficult for the ECB to rein back significantly because there's still so much slack in the European labour market. You raise a point though, Marcus, and it was about the leaks that we've had uh, over the last couple of days. There seems to be a choice on the governing council between dropping it from 60 to 40 for six months or 60 to 20 for nine. Is that because we are reaching the technical limits of the programme and they're reluctant to tweak the rules? I don't think they can tweak the rules as far as legality is concerned. It's way too much effort for them. But they can, they've got three options. They can either uh, further... Uh, bend the sort of capital key rules, but that's not going to solve any any real issue for them. They can widen um, uh, perhaps the types of bonds they buy to include more agencies, supranationals like the FSF, which they're already bailing out, um, which is the Greece bank thing. Um, and, and or in a sense, they, they, can, they can lower the amount that they're doing it because really, I think by April, but certainly they've already admitted actually the ECB that by the, you know, the end of the first half, they will not be. They will run out of, of bunts to buy, and that's the, that's the key issue. Here. Yeah. So uh, something has to be done. Uh, it's a question of, of of how they go about it, and and the effect. It's about the only thing they can do to control the euro. What's your base case at this point, Michael? I think we'll see a taper of around about to about 40 billion euros at the beginning of next year, maybe February, March, probably March. And the reason that I'll leave it that long is because we have the Italian elections coming up, and I think yeah. to do any more. Um, would be a little bit impetuous, particularly given that um, you know there is a possibility that we could get another very diff- difficult result. Gents, great to have you with me to break down three important stories. Thank you very much, of course, to Michael Hewson, the Chief Market Analyst for CMC Markets, and to Bloomberg Gadfly's Marcus Ashworth. Gents, thank you. Still ahead on the cable, we take it to the action in the United States, where the US is said to be watering down North Korea sanctions before a vote on the UN Security Council, particularly, maybe, as early as today. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrell on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrell. You are listening to The Cable from the London close to the US action live on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5.30pm in the city. Let me whip through that market action for you. A decent session across Europe with a FTSE finishing higher by 0.49%. The DAX up by 1.39%. Broad-based gains led by the insurers and the reinsurers across the continent as some of those big companies begin to fade the hurricane risk as Hurricane Herma transforms into a tropical storm and some of the uh, dire forecasts do not materialise. Something else that didn't materialise over the weekend was the expected missile launch from North Korea, expected in some quarters of the market. That didn't come. So it's risk on, on the margin at least. That means a stronger dollar story across FX, with the exception against the uh, the loonie, the Canadian dollar. Everything else is weaker against the dollar in the G10 space. The major currencies, the euro, the Swissy, the Japanese yen, down against the greenback. Euro dollar on the back foot then at 119.62 
we're down six tenths of one percent and the cable rate sterling against the US dollar also on the back foot trading lower by a couple of tenths of one percent to 131.77 so that's the broader market story in FX and equities let's get you across the Bloomberg's Charlie Pallet for some top stories all right I thank you very much Jonathan Farrell lots going on Prime Minister May's government appears close to victory on a Brexit bill in Parliament May will likely squeak to victory on a bill that will let the government copy EU laws onto the domestic statute book the real challenge will be whether she can keep the draft law from being amended and the so-called committee stage it enters next. 9-11 victims' relatives marking the anniversary of the attacks at Ground Zero in New York City this morning with a personal ceremony. Relatives read out the names of the nearly 3,000 people killed in the deadliest terror attack on American soil. At the Pentagon, President Trump said the September 11th terrorist attacks were the moment the United States awakened to the depth of the evil it faces. And Apple planning to unveil three iPhones tomorrow, including two that are upgrades to the the iPhone 7 and the iPhone 7 Plus called the iPhone 8 and the iPhone 8 Plus and a premium model called the iPhone X. That is the latest from New York. Latest in the newsroom. Back to you, Jonathan Farrell. Charlie, thank you. Um, Bloomberg's Michael Regan just entering the studio. Mike, is it the X or the 10? Because we only know how it's written. We don't know how it's said, pronounced. We won't find out until tomorrow. Yeah, well, I guess X is clearly a nod to its 10th anniversary of yeah. the iPhone. Uh, maybe a nod to the number of $100 bills it costs. Yes, too, possibly. Yeah, maybe, because <laughs> it's going to cost that much, right, apparently. Right. But, but pretty amazing story, all these details leaking over the weekend. Someone dug up the software code online that uh, I've written a lot about how it happened. I'm, I'm not sure anyone knows exactly There are how some incredible people out there, Mike Reed, really that managed to find out the name of the iPhone <laughs> before it comes out by searching the internet for some leaked code. Yep. And, and, you know, these URLs that are intended to be hard to find that you're not supposed to be able to just guess and say, you know, Apple backslash iPhone 10, yeah. just find it. You know, really uh, elaborate URLs. And, and, and still they, they found it so the question is, you know, did someone internally leak it or, or really is it some super genius uh, programmer out there who found it? But, um, yeah, it's an interesting uh, event. I, I saw one uh, brokerage report estimating something like two thirds of respondents said they're they're ready to buy a new iPhone. Um, how many buy this thousand dollar phone? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I as as a father of three girls, that that's that's my biggest nightmare that they all ask for iPhone well, X's or tens. How for... old are you three girls? Because you should not be buying them an iPhone, Michael. Well, fourteen's the oldest. She's okay. got. She's she, got. She might be one. in the running, but a thousand dollars. Eleven and ten. No, they'll get the. the I might be buying them iPhone four off of uh, eBay I feel like my dad point. had it so much easier. I just wanted a football, <laughs> right. you know, and, and it would cost him like 20 pounds for a decent one. It's Well, it's true, though. It's weird. You sort of run out of gift ideas for kids these days because all they do is sit on their phone. And, and maybe if they put the phone down, they're picking up the Kindle for a while or, or the laptop. So it's, you know, it's not as easy as going into the toy store and, and picking out uh, toys for these So kids. I told the guys we were going to talk North Korea, but we're just going to kind of rip up the script and talk talk Apple very quickly. Um, Danny Berger, essentially the problem, and, and Bloomberg's Danny Berger joins us in the studio as well to talk Apple, even though she thought we were talking North Korea. Um, <laughs> the story with the iPhone is that this OLED screen costs a fortune. Samsung supply like 90% of them. 
they cost, what do they cost? $200, $300. That's just the input price for the smartphone. So you have right. to check, you have to charge a thousand. Right. I mean, just, it's just this, to maintain the profit margin. Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's this mental sort of barrier that a lot of these phone makers have been trying to sort of see if they can overcome. A thousand dollars, that's spending that on your phone just seems quite the jump. But when you think about a phone that has as much capacity to, uh, you know, do what your laptop does or, or looks great, maybe you're willing to spend that. I know a fair amount of people who I've talked to have said, you know, I haven't gotten a new iPhone since, uh, you know, the iPhone uh, 6, which feels like years ago. So I'm willing to splurge and spend $1,000 on it. Uh, I don't know if that's that's good or bad news for Apple because that means people aren't keeping up with the with the cycle and buying a new yeah. phone every time something comes out. So if you buy this a thousand dollar phone, I would assume you're going to wait a while before purchasing a new one again, which doesn't seem great for Apple, uh, considering how much cash they need to continually produce uh, with all this debt and all of the uh, all of the dividends they pay to shareholders. I think what makes me laugh, Michael, is that we, we spend so many days on Bloomberg TV and, and Bloomberg Radio talking about inflation. Where's the inflation? Where's the consumer price tolerance? How much can you charge the consumer? Do you have pricing power? And then we're going to have this landmark event that will happen this week. And I think you've got to connect the dots, connect the two things. There will be a huge amount of consumers lined up outside Apple stores in the coming weeks to spend $1,000 on a smartphone. Are we really capturing the inflation story in the most effective, efficient way? Well, I, you know, if you, if you look at the iPhone, you have to look at all of the things it's displaced. You know, I, I look at the apps on my phone and I sure. think... Uh, I've, I play guitar. I got a guitar tuner on my phone. I'd, I'll never buy a guitar tuner again. I've got, you know, uh, the temperature on there. Not that I would buy a thermometer, but I, I'll never need that again. I mean, on and on and on. I don't wear a watch anymore. I got the time on here all the yeah. time. So it certainly is having a suppressing uh, impact on prices of devices that are easily replicated uh, and gadgets that are easily replicated by this. I do think you're right, though. It's it's surprising that in this stage of a product cycle, you know, you think back of sort of other revolutionary products like the the flat screen TV. You know, there's big innovation where we had, you know, high def flat screen TVs. Thousands. Across I mean, it, th thousands. To get a 32 inch flat screen TV when the plasmas first came out. Do you remember how much they cost? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. More than I even bothered to even look because I, I wasn't going to buy one. More, but, more than the iPhone that comes out right, tomorrow. Right. And, and, you know, but then the, the cycle is, then there's massive innovation in, in the next few years. And we saw that with the with the cell phones too. Uh, but eventually it sort of reaches a plateau where you, you really, like in this day and age, you can't make a TV much better. I mean, I know they're trying, to, you know, there's the push for 3D uh, yeah. television and, and other, but you eventually get to this sort of commodity. And it, it seems to me that that's where we are in the the life cycle of mobile phones. So it is surprising for them to have to to, to grasp at this thousand dollar market. I do think they'll sell a lot of them. I don't know though. It's it's you know there's a certain number of just Apple super fans that'll buy it, yeah. and others that like the conspicuous consumption nature of it. But I think most people are going to be buying the cheaper models. <laughs> well, I can tell you we're going to have full coverage right here on Bloomberg that begins at 1 p.m. Eastern time out of New York. So that means 6 p.m. for all of you listening in London. Look out for that. A big day coming up for Apple stock investors and not just you iPhone users as well. Michael Regan, senior editor and lead blogger for Markets Live and Danny Berger, Markets and Quants reporter. Sticking with me, this is Bloomberg Radio. 
This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. Hello, hello. You are listening to The Cable from the London Close to the US Action live on DAB Digital Radio. The United States has watered down proposed sanctions on North Korea. That's according to a European diplomat. The United Nations Security Council may vote today whether to punish Kim Jong-un's regime for its recent nuclear test. The United States has now omitted an oil embargo and a freeze of Kim's assets from new sanctions. North Korea warned on Monday of retaliation if the UN approves the US proposal for harsher sanctions. For some quarters of this market, there was an expectation over the weekend that there could be another missile launch. Off the back of that, with the absence of one, we fade the North Korea risk and it stimulates some appetite type for risk assets. That means treasuries are lower and that means stocks are pushing higher. To discuss about whether that's the right approach and where we go next, Michael Regan, senior editor and lead blogger for Markets Live and Danny Berger, Markets and Quant reporter, joins me around the table today. And Danny, I just wonder how the North Korea dynamic really influences markets and if I see, what I see on the screen is really just noise or signal when I fold that back into what's happening with geopolitics. I mean, look, at the end of the day, if we believe what we learned in uh, our economics classes is that the markets are supposed to reflect whether or not, uh, you know, we're headed towards a recession or whether the economy it's health is healthy uh, to the extent I, that... I don't even know if they're good at that anymore. <laughs> uh, that's a good point. Maybe a, a tail is wagging the dog a bit with yeah. the uh, the uh, markets getting so large. Anyway, I mean, the, the question has to become, if you believe that, uh, is what is what's going on with North Korea going to derail growth in the U.S.? Uh, and if everything looks like not much has changed, they didn't launch another test. Uh, things are a little bit obscure with how this UN vote is going to go. But if everything is sort of heading along with not much changing, then, you know, people are unlikely to reflect that in, in how they're investing. And we've we've seen that in past uh, sort of issues that that are like this in terms of geopolitical issues, uh, and sometimes as as a sort of uh, cynical as this is to say, sometimes a war helps boost economic growth. Oh, Danny Berger, Ooh. I know, that, that I know, a, that, that is a crude way of the world. <laughs> I, I will say, I don't just know about thermo, thermonuclear. No, that is that is very fair. <laughs> that raises the question as to how on earth you price that anyway. If certain places are going to be wiped off the map, yeah. let's not go into that place. Danny took us there. I'm going to pull us back, and I'm going to take <laughs> us somewhere that's, that's else. Probably wise. I'm going to take us somewhere else really crude, which is just to say, is watering down sanctions positive for sentiment? Is that a positive when you begin a new trading week, you learn there wasn't a missile launch over the weekend, and the United States aren't going into the UN Security Council today with all guns blazing? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it possibly comes across as a, a little bit of softening on, on the US end. But in reality, I mean, China and Russia sort of have all the leverage here when it comes to the UN Security Council. And it's clear that you know that they're still going to flex their muscles and you know try to try to you know exert their their influence uh, in this situation. And and there's only so much the U.S. can do. They can't unilaterally uh, put the sanctions they want to put on. Uh, you know they can't stop China from exporting uh, to North Korea. Can't stop Russia from sending them oil. 
Um, so the market, I think, is realizing that it's it, we've kind of reached this geopolitical equilibrium yeah. that was similar to what it was before the latest tensions. In so, that. so, Mike, just to be clear, you know, on the UN Security Council, there are five countries that have veto holding power. Right. Um, the US, the UK and France, of course, would probably back a proposal that was put forward by either of those countries. But continually, we have this problem where Russia and China, the other two countries with veto holding power, are holding things up. So as you go into the UN Security Council today, is this the United States that wanted to put tougher sanctions on, but ultimately knew it couldn't because... China and Russia would oppose them. I, I do. I think that's exactly that's exactly right. Um, you know, and the question becomes: How does North Korea respond to this? Do they consider this a win that they're able to to conduct a sixth nuclear test uh, without major crippling economic sanctions? And is that enough for them to sort of tone down their rhetoric a little bit? I, I don't know. I mean, it's a pretty un, unpredictable situation. Yeah. I think the market is obviously going to be vulnerable to another spasm of risk off if they do conduct another test or, or their tensions get ratcheted up again. Michael Regan and Danny Berger of Bloomberg sticking with me. Coming up on the cable, we bring you the week ahead, a week full of US data. Just how clean will it be? This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable from the London Close to the US Action, live, of course, across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5.48pm in the city. Here's your week ahead as far as the UK, Europe and the US trading action is concerned. On Tuesday, tomorrow, we get Apple, of course, hosting their product launch event, expected, reportedly, to launch three New phones, full coverage tomorrow, right here on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg TV. On Thursday, we count you down to a Bank of England rate decision in the eyes and arguments and views of many, a Bank of England non-decision with rates at record lows, unmoved for a decade at least. Um, Thursday, US consumer price index is projected to have risen in the month of August. Look out for CPI Thursday. Then Friday, US retail sales come through. That one's going to be interesting because I want to know when we actually get a clean read on the data. Mike Regan and Danny Berger are alongside me today on Bloomberg Radio. Um, Mike Regan, it's going to be tough really to get a read on retail sales, inflation, employment numbers over the next several months because of the hurricane that hit one Texas and the one that played out in the last 24 hours down in Florida. Yeah, absolutely. The numbers are going to be very fuzzy uh, for August and September, really. Um you know, the main one I'm looking out for this week is both the PPI and the CPI. I'm not sure how much the hurricanes will really be moving the needle with those. I mean, it's definitely possible that, you know, you saw some price hikes here and there for uh, various things as a result of the hurricane. But that one might be still be pretty clean, I would guess. Yeah. Um, and it's obviously the most important heading into the, the Fed meeting coming up. Uh, we had a pretty good post on the blog earlier by Yi Shi talking about how China's PPI came in really hot overnight. Uh, Consumer price think, index yeah, as well. It was uh, you know a, above, I think, all but one of the economists in our survey. And he did a, a post showing how China inflation is often, especially PPI producer inflation, is often a little bit of a leading indicator for the U.S. numbers. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if that's the case this time, if, if we are getting a little bit of feed through on, uh, you know, overseas inflation. And, and a surprise on the upside will be an interesting moment for the market, I would think. 
So some reflationary forces reasserting themselves in the data in the coming months. For the Federal Reserve, Danny, is that a story we continue to fade? Because I'm not sure how much more we can fade off it. If you look at where the market is, let's just look at where Treasuries have traded. Sure, 10-year yields are higher today, but last week we kissed the 2017 low of just north of 2%. Sure, right. I mean, this has been a theme that we've continued to see throughout this year. So it's hard to imagine that that story really changing. Um, of course, we're, we're going to have to sort of get more cues in, in what we see in this next decision. Um, but in, in terms of just uh, other things going on this week besides data that I think is going to be increasingly important is just yeah. when you look at Congress in the U.S. and the huge, huge to-do list that they have. I mean, that's they're going to start having talks this week. They're going to have to tackle that uh, from spending to more efforts to uh, repeal Obamacare. Um, in terms of what could get uh, U.S. markets sort of invigorated again, of course, any sort of tax reform would do that. And we've just seen such delay and so much issue coming from Congress having that being able to happen. Uh, so if we hear any more talk, any progress out of the House, I don't know, people are pretty skeptical right now yeah. uh, with reason that that could occur. Uh, any positive development could see uh, quite quite the uh, you know surprising reaction I think from one the, US markets. One of the biggest tasks for any investors or market participants and economists out there at the moment is to really divorce your economic analysis from your political biases. And, and Matt Dow, a fund manager who is quite, quite prevalent on Twitter at the moment, has really pointed that out as well, Michael. And I just wonder, it's one of the reasons I love financial markets, because you can talk politics without the bias right. and just do it through the prism of markets. Right. Last week, when the President of the United States got together with the Democrats to push through a three-month debt bill to suspend the debt limit until the end of the year, and to fold in some Harvey debt relief as well, some Harvey relief in terms of the funds. Was that positive for risk sentiment, Mike? Was that a good thing? I think it was, yeah, absolutely. You know, we I've seen a lot of notes. I, I even had a post on the blog this morning about this, about there is this undeniable correlation between President Trump's approval rating and a whole slew of different trades. I mean, the dollar index almost matched up perfectly. The Bloomberg dollar spot index almost matches up perfectly with Trump's approval rating. Um, there was no doubt from uh, Morgan Stanley's Michael Lewis today talking about all these other trades that at least at least appear to be correlated. Uh, you know, bond yields, small caps, mid caps, uh, cyclical stocks, banks, energy stocks. So, you know, you can't really separate it right now. They're they're sort of joined at the hip. Um, this notion that uh, Trump, you know, appeared very presidential after the hurricanes. I mean, his his rating very much reached its lowest point after the incident in Charlottesville and, and how they responded uh, a bit controversial to that. Yeah. But the hurricanes that deal to raise the debt ceiling have helped it. I mean, he's he's back up to about 39.7%. That's the real clear politics uh, average, you know, and it, it, it up a significant amount from the from the middle of August. So you can't really separate it right now. They're they're very much joined in the hip, and I don't know whether they should be. But you know, looking at the numbers, they're they're very clearly is a reaction to Trump as he as his approval rating rebounds. Just to wrap things up, um, Bank of England rate decision. Of course, we've had a, a series of cuts over the last ten years. Danny, we haven't seen a hike 
for a decade. You're moving to London soon. I imagine we're not going to see a hike for a while. <laughs> right. Well, this is the interesting thing. Central banks just globally, I mean, they've done a pretty good job of together uh, cutting and, 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 and the timing there uh, seem to be somewhat concerted. Now, if we see that with hikes going forward, uh, that's a little bit troublesome. Are we going to see sort of the same pace, the same effort throughout banks? There's going to be a lot of mismatch between the Bank of England and the US. And how is that going to affect investors? I'd have to imagine if there's a lot of discrepancy between different central banks, uh, that's going to be troublesome for a lot of folks. My dream is that everyone just becomes polos and does what the Bank of Canada does, which (laughs) is don't talk about it, (laughs) just just do it. it. You don't need a news conference. Let the data speak for itself. Don't worry about the markets, just do it and people will get over it. We can move on and talk about much more important things. Michael Regan and Danny Berger of Bloomberg, it's been a privilege, a pleasure to have you on The Cable. Thank you very much. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio. We'll be back with you tomorrow. Bloomberg Radio coverage continues. 